The football season is reaching its conclusion and Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. And with Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Welcome to the Ornstein and Chapman podcast on The Athletic. Coming up today from my column this week, details on Leicester City star James Madison's new contract. Our Foxes writer Rob Tanner joins me. As the transfer window opens, Jack Pitbrook tells us what makes Spurs chairman Daniel Levy one of the most feared and respected negotiators in the game. We also look at Manchester United's transfer operation led by Ed Woodward. And we'll touch on the ever-increasing value of player stats and data in the game with our football analytics writer Tom Warville. Right now, The Athletic is free for 30 days, bringing you the very best football writing around. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Ornstein and Chapman to sign up. And don't forget about my new weekly YouTube Q&A show, Ask Ornstein, answering the very best questions provided by our brilliant Athletic subscribers. Head over to the TIFO podcast YouTube channel on Tuesday morning to watch the latest video. And don't forget to subscribe to the channel for more superb podcast content. From my column this week, we revealed that Leicester City's James Madison has signed a new four-year contract worth £110,000 a week. Madison's now 23. He joined Leicester from Norwich in 2018 for around £22 million. I think it's 16 goals, 10 assists in 76 appearances. And that's seen the likes of Manchester United and some of Europe's other leading clubs show interest in signing him. There's been a lot of speculation, but he has now penned this deal, which will see him elevated closer to the Jamie Vardy bracket of earning, uh, Vardy being the best paid player at Leicester. And it will be news that delights Leicester City fans, I'm sure. Let's face it, James Madison will have ambitions of one day playing for one of the so-called sort of Galactico clubs, I'm sure, in his career on the right trajectory with club and country having broken through for England as well but I think he understands that Leicester City is the best place for him now um, this uh, contract settles that question and f- at least for the next couple of years I'm sure um, and he's also keen I'm told to continue the relationship that he's he's built up with Brendan Rodgers since he came in as manager but no better person to speak to about this than our Leicester City writer Rob Tanner Rob, this will come as welcome news for the club, I'm sure, especially on the back of missing out on Champions League qualification on Sunday. Madison is a player who appears to be happy with the ambition of the club. Yeah, and I think a number of the uh, young players are as well. I, I think they see that Leicester City is a progressive club. It's an ambitious club. It's striving to be competing on a consistent basis at the top end of the table. And it gives young talent opportunities. I mean, we've seen this with the the uh, injury crisis at the end of the season that uh, young Luke Thomas has come into the side and James Justin's come in as well. And, and they seem to recruit uh, young lads with 
with potential to develop. And uh, I think uh, they've got a great camaraderie as well. You know, there's a good bond amongst them. He's good friends with a lot of those uh, lads as well. So I think he wants to stick around because he's enjoying his football at the moment. Madison was actually um, mentioned in the first column I did for The Athletic way back in October when we reported that he was on Manchester United's list of targets for this summer transfer window. Now, a lot has happened uh, in between now and then, not least with the COVID crisis. And Madison's transfer fee would have been enormous this summer. Leicester were under no pressure to sell. They had contractual strength, which they have with a lot of their players. So I guess this is a, is a bit of a, a coup for Leicester to have tied him down and probably the right thing for him at this stage in his career, would you say? Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I mean, he's on the, the verge of the England squad. He's had a great period with Leicester. The second half of this season... His own stats have uh, dropped a lot, as well as the team's stats. But overall, he's been a fantastic uh, performer and uh, they've really missed him since he's been out. He's that creative spark in midfield. Do you think this contract was ever in doubt? Do you think the speculation was ever likely to to have come to fruition or, or inside Leicester, were they always optimistic that this would get done? Yeah, I think they were. I mean, all I was hearing for quite a while now is uh, very, they were very optimistic about getting this deal done for a number of months. This has been going on for a long time, and I think it's all about timing. I don't think they wanted to announce a big contract, a big pay rise for a young talent at a time when people are losing their jobs in the real world. And, you know, they were very conscious about how that might look. Uh, on the outside world, you know, everything else, everybody else is having to tighten the belts and, and are struggling. And here they are, young footballers getting a, a new big contract with um, um, a massive pay rise. But, you know, that's the reality of football. You know, football has to move on. The world has to keep turning. And, uh, and James Madison securing him for the foreseeable future. I mean, we know what happened with Harry Maguire. He signed a, a long-term contract and within a year he joined Man United. But that was um, for a massive fee. And this is the thing that City do. They don't leave themselves vulnerable with contracts, certainly with young talent that they want to keep, that they value. They've done it with Ben Chilwell and there's a lot of speculation around him as well, but he's got four years left on his contract, which puts them in a very strong position. And I think they're doing that uh, as well with uh, Madison because if he has another phenomenal season next season, then there will be some uh, bigger clubs coming in and, and having a sniff around him and they just want to protect themselves. Yeah, you mentioned the wages. It sounds like it's uh, pretty much double your money. So he won't be disappointed, I'm sure. His immediate priority will be get to rest up and get back to fitness, obviously with the injury that ruled him out of the end of the season. So that's retention done. But what about recruitment? Do you expect Brendan Rodgers to be uh, in the transfer market and, and a sort of active presence there? Um, or do you think it's about keeping this squad together? I think it's about both. I think they've got to keep the core of this uh, squad together because they are young and they are growing and developing. They would have learned a lot about this season, certainly they would have learnt more probably from the last 17 games than they did the previous uh, 20, 21 games when everything was going so well for them. And Brendan's talked a lot about character and personality and you know he wants to add to that that core. And I think he does need to bring in some players that have got those qualities that can help with these young players to develop. Because when things really got challenging in those last 17 games, you know it wasn't quite the same. They didn't quite have the character to get over the line. And obviously all the injuries as well played a factor. But uh, yeah, I do think they... That last 17 games has exposed the vulnerability of the squad, uh, the lack of quality in depth in that squad for them to be able to sustain a challenge for a Champions League. You mentioned Ben Chilwell, you mentioned the strength of Leicester's contracts, um, but many people listening to this will want to know what's going to happen there. It seems to have gone a bit quiet of late. We're 
also seen a, a very good, promising young left back coming through at Leicester. So do you think that one's going to hot up? There's been um, very strong reports about Chelsea's interest, Manchester City even in the mix as well. But it, f- for anybody that wants Ben Chilwell, he's not going to come on the cheap. Exactly. And that might be the reason why he might still be at the club come uh, next season. I, I I know there's a lot of interest in him. Um, Leicester City are aware of it as well, but they uh, they seem quite relaxed about the situation. They know that they've got this uh, security blanket of the four-year deal uh, that he's still got to go on his contract. Um, so it's a similar situation to the Harry Maguire one they faced before. It is familiar territory for them. So when Man United came in for Maguire, in the end, Leicester City stood firm and they got a world record fee for a defender for him. Now, obviously, it's we're, it's all very unpredictable about the transfer window now and how COVID has affected things but it looks like there's still a lot of money swishing around in the game at the, at the top top level so if one of those clubs comes in for Ben Chilwell he will not be cheap but Leicester City will be preparing for life without Ben just in case Luke Thomas is coming through is a bonus for them but I still think they would look to to, to bring in another left back if Ben was to move on. Just a quick final one, Rob, as you've written in your piece on The Athletic today, Monday, uh, that from day one, Rogers has wanted Leicester to think and act like a big team, hasn't he? Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he wants them to be ruthless. He wants them... There's there's no freebies. There's no giveaways. That, so when you go into the Cups, you, you're totally focused on the Cups, which... Um, his predecessor, Claude Puel, was uh, criticised by the fans for perhaps not taking the cup seriously when they had great opportunities in that. And also we saw with the Southampton game, he wanted them to be ruthless, like the big clubs, like the Man Cities and the Liverpools. You know, if you smell uh, blood, you go in for the kill. And that was certainly the case at Southampton in the first half of the season. Obviously, this, the way it went in the second half of the season, there's still a lot to learn and a lot to develop. And there's a lot of improvement to be done at, uh, at Leicester City. And that's Brendan's work now. And he's probably learned a lot more about his squad uh, in those that second half of the season now. And he, he's probably a lot clearer about what work needs to be done in terms of the transfer market and developing the players he's got as well. But it is about mentality and personality, as I said before. That's what he wants his team to have, the big team mentality that they go out every week and they can still produce regardless of the circumstances, game after game after game. That's how you get consistency and that's how you win titles, qualify for Champions League and win trophies. And they're also going to have to balance doing that on a Thursday and, and Sunday now with the Europa League, which will be a slightly new experience for them, especially for this particular group under Rogers. Rob, thanks very much. Plenty more uh, from Rob over on The Athletic and you can hear more from him on our Leicester City podcast, 5,000 to 1. Hello, I'm James Richardson, host of the Totally Football Show, now part of the Athletics Podcast Network. We're going to be here following all the action as the 2020 football season reaches its belated conclusion. And if you're an Athletics subscriber, you can now hear exclusive ad-free versions of our show on the Athletic app. And don't worry, if you're not a subscriber, you can still listen to us for free with the occasional word from our sponsor by searching for The Totally Football Show on Apple, Spotify and all the usual podcast places. The Totally Football Show with me, James Richardson, still totally free and now totally ad-free on The Athletic. Spurs chairman Daniel Levy is one of the most powerful men in English football, as well as one of the most private. There's a long read over on The Athletic that answers the key question, what makes Daniel Levy tick? It's a joint piece written by Charlie Eccleshare and Jack Pitt-Brook, and Jack is here to tell us more. Jack, you spoke to dozens of people who know Levy or have worked with him to judge 
what he's done for Spurs over the last two decades, what sort of picture emerged? The words that kept coming back when you ask about what, what is Daniel actually like, because he's a very private person who doesn't do an awful lot of media and he's he does like to keep himself to himself. But the most common words I heard were intelligent, very hardworking, very ambitious, completely lives and breathes his job, which has been running Tottenham for the last 20 years. Private, humble, doesn't especially seek the limelight. And the, it's always, you know, sometimes with this kind of thing, you, you never know what you're going to get back when you start speaking to people. But in this case, there was quite a lot of um, unanimity between all the various different sources. He has such a reputation among fans and people within the game who maybe work at other clubs or agents. People I speak to inside and outside of football kind of know him as being a tough negotiator, knowing him as really counting every penny, whether it's on contracts or transfers or building of stadiums. And your piece really gets into all of those key issues around how meticulous he is. And I particularly liked one quote you used from a source that said he would have Manchester United for mincemeat. And that's why they're not necessarily going in for transfer negotiations with him anymore. There's definitely a lot of people in football who don't like dealing with him. You know, you hear plenty of stories of agents and clubs who are really reluctant to deal with Tottenham because they don't like dealing with Daniel because it is such a uh, it's such a long, drawn out, painful process. And Levy he relishes these kind of hard negotiations so much that he often finds that whoever he's sitting across from, whether that's player, club, agent, whoever, doesn't quite have the same stomach for it as he does. There is quite a lot of let's say frustration with Daniel from elsewhere in the industry but at the same time there's a lot of respect as well because people think you know it's his it's his job to get the best possible deal for Tottenham Tottenham don't have an owner who's willing to inject huge amounts of money like Chelsea and Manchester City do they don't have the same commercial operation yet as Manchester United or Liverpool so of course Levy's got to fight as hard as he can for every penny when you look as an outsider at the stadium the training ground um, the level of competition Tottenham were really also runs for a long time and now they're uh, challenging for Europe and last season Champions League finalists uh, a couple of years prior almost won the Premier League. It baffles you a little bit as to why a section of the Tottenham fans are determined for him to leave the club and, and really dislike him. There is surely a truth somewhere in between. You can understand both perspectives but from my perspective, he does look like he's done a pretty good job overall. Yeah, I think he's done a great job. Look, since we published the story, there's been a fair bit of... I've got a, quite a few tweets from Spurs fans saying that we've been too nice to Daniel or too nice to Enoch and, and they don't see it the same way. And, and I, of course, I understand their frustrations that Spurs have only won one trophy under Levy. They haven't really got the silverware to show for the progress they have made. At the same time, they have obviously improved on the pitch. You know, they were never really a regular feature in the top four until they had those two top four finishes under Redknapp and then I think four consecutively under Mauricio Pochettino. They have played in the Champions League final. They finished second with 86 points in 16-17, which was their best season in the league since Bill Nicholson. So on the pitch, I think they have been heading in the right direction. And the other thing you've got to remember with this is that over the course of the 20 years that Levy's been running Tottenham, he has seen the financial landscape of the Premier League utterly transformed by the investment of first Chelsea and then Manchester City and it's got harder and harder and harder for Spurs to compete so the fact that Spurs are still competing with the big sides and they've invested in all this infrastructure while they've seen other teams living a completely different life financially just shows you how well Daniel's done.
go through the transfers that Tottenham have made over the years one by one. You'll see loads of successes, loads of failures. It's pretty much the same at every club. But one thing that I would sort of extrapolate is that, what's the word, his frugality has perhaps cost Tottenham, especially deals taking place late in transfer windows, perhaps not coming to fruition in all cases, and then Tottenham suffering on the pitch. Equally, they they have made some, as I said, very shrewd moves. The transfer window is open now, Jack. So is this the time that Daniel Levy likes to go into battle? And, and do people see a change in him from the operator outside of transfer windows to the one within them? We have a quote from someone saying they like Daniel from, um, I think it's September to December and from February to June. But during the transfer windows, they don't like him. It's a bit like my wife. <laughs> yeah, because of how tough he is. I do think if there's a criticism to be made of Levy, it's, so one source said to me, Daniel wants to do a deal where he feels like he can't lose. Like if, he, if, if he's signing a player he wants, he'll still only do it at what he thinks is the best possible price. And he won't. he's kind of reluctant to take a risk, push the boat out, take a bit of a punt. And I do think that if... I think the fairest criticism of Levy is that he's had a few moments where Spurs were really on the brink of something and they needed to take a bit of a risk and they didn't. So you can look at, towards the end of the Harry Redknapp era, that famous January transfer window, I think they signed Luis Sahar and Ryan Nelson when some more, you know, two or three better players might have, might have helped the team out. And then most obviously, the sort of second half of the Pochettino era, after that fantastic improvement in 2015, 2016, 2017, and then in 2017, they signed a bunch of backup players. And in 2018, they didn't sign anyone at all. And they didn't sign Mane, and they didn't sign Grealish, and they didn't sign Zaha, and they didn't sign Isco, or any of these other fantastic players who they were looking at. And I think it is fair enough to say that at that moment of opportunity, they should have t- Tottenham should have taken a bit more of a risk and tried, you know, even if it meant an extra £100 million pounds that, might not, that might not pay off. And if he'd done that, then I think Pochettino would have won a trophy. Uh, so I do think that's a fair criticism. But in general, I think it, you know it's a pretty mixed bag. Well, after a long time of uh, very little spending, or you could say no spending, they did find the key to the transfer war chest last summer and um, invested pretty heavily. You can argue however you like about the results of that spending, but we now have a market coming up. We've got a manager at Tottenham who... Um, has a track record of using the market and wanting his clubs to spend and to back him in a way that will help him fulfil his ambitions on the pitch, and that's Jose Mourinho. Uh, Do you think that Levy's going to be able to back him, willing to back him, or do you think there could be a clash coming up here? We do know that Tottenham are looking more at sort of loan swaps and using the... um, income they raise from sales to finance signings that's going to be the same at many clubs we are told and we have been for a long time that there's a very good chance that Pierre-Emile Hoybier from Southampton will end up at Tottenham because every party involved in it uh, wants it maybe Southampton would want a a club who'll pay more money Um, and then there are all manner of other positions that need to be filled given that Yang Vertonghen has now left given that there are positions that were not strengthened previously like right back support for Harry Kane in attack etc so what are you expecting in the coming months? So Hoiberg is obviously the number one target I'm like you I'm confident that they will eventually get that deal done after him I think they need I think that they want a right back uh, to compete or even replace with Serge Aurier. I think probably another centre-back, although that's maybe less of a priority now that Eric Dyer signed a new deal. And I think an alternative to Harry Kane is a number nine. But I agree with you that I don't think these are going to be big buys. I don't think the money's there. One potential lever they have to pull is if they can get rid of Tangi and Dombele, 
who is their who they spent I think fifty five million pounds on from Leon last year and has obviously not clicked at all with Jose Mourinho. Uh, so if they can get rid of him to Barca or PSG, maybe on a loan with a big fee, or even even better for Tottenham if they can sell him, then they'll have a bit more room for manoeuvre. But if that doesn't happen, I don't think they're, they're really going to push the boat out. Is this where the sort of nicey-nicey relationship that we've seen largely in Mourinho's uh, first, what, half a season in charge um, starts to crack a little bit if he doesn't get what he wants. I've even seen reports that he's given a list of transfer targets to Daniel Levy. That is the big question for Tottenham in 20, certainly next year and beyond, is is the state of that relationship. You know, we all know that Mourinho likes to play politics with transfers and putting pressure on his on his bosses, he obviously fell out badly with Ed Woodward at the end at Manchester United over transfers. So I don't, you know, it, it remains to be seen how happy he'll be with what he gets in the summer and how that impacts his relationship with Levy. But so far in public, he has certainly been nothing but positive about Levy's running of the club. And let's finish how we started by talking about Levy and something I'm really keen to know because you address it in the piece and it's talked about by a lot of Tottenham fans I know. Is there any chance that he would move on, that Enoch Joe Lewis would move on and sell the club? I'm sure there's plenty of interest, or are they here for the foreseeable future? There is plenty of interest. I think there certainly have been talks with interested parties. You hear a lot of talk about um, private equity investors or NFL owners. Clearly nothing's been done. I think the coronavirus pandemic and recession means that a deal is less likely because there are now fewer buyers for assets that cost £2 billion, which I think is more or less the valuation for Tottenham. And also, as we, as I wrote in the piece, even if there is a sale or an equity stake investment, I, I expect Daniel Levy to continue at the club. He wants to stay as a club as the CEO, even in the event of a sale, to secure his legacy. So I don't think Tottenham fans can expect Levy to head off anytime soon. Jack, thank you. A pleasure as ever. You can read more from Jack and the other Tottenham reporters over on The Athletic, and you can hear more from them on our Spurs pod, View from the Lane. This podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the expert in men's below-the-belt grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels, and Manscaped has just launched in the UK. We've gone years without using the right tools for the job, so you can be one of the first men in the country to experience Manscaped's life-changing products. Their third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce manscaping accidents, and the water-resistant technology also allows you to groom whilst in the shower. And we've got a special offer right now for all of you listening to this podcast. Get 20% off and free shipping right now by using the code EPL20 at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com by using the code EPL20. Happy shaving! Manchester United got the job done on the pitch and now their fans will be hoping they take care of business off the field and bring in some new faces ahead of next season. Laurie Whitwell is our United writer and he's here. Laurie, thank you for coming on. Remind listeners how player recruitment works at United with a specific sort of focus this time on Ed Woodward and Matt Judge. It's a a collegiate approach is, is how they'd view it. They've got the scouting department um, where they've got numerous scouts across the globe who all feed into the recruitment structure there. And then they've also got Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and his coaching staff who have their own views. Either side has got a sort of power of veto over certain transfers. And obviously they'll use data and they'll use um, various uh, video technologies to um, get you know absolutely every bit of information they can. And then you know Edward Wood and Matt Judge are the guys really tasked with um, negotiating the deals, getting uh, what they consider to be the best deal 
um, for Manchester United. Matt Judge, who is uh, the chief negotiator, um, he will uh, he has a, a background in in banking and negotiating sort of multi million pound deals there. So um, he was hired on that proviso that he can um, work out leverage in, in certain deals, and he will talk to agents. He'll talk to um, sporting directors at other clubs. Ed Woodward um, has a direct line with Joel Glazer, who takes a very interested view on all substantial investments. He wants to sort of know where the money is going, um, and so therefore that's how it, it works. You know, it's sort of the, the Joel Glazer kind of sets the parameters. Ed Woodward works within that, and, and Matt Judge sort of beyond that as well. Well, it's clear that United are going to invest this summer, and we know that their top target for that right-sided attacking position is Jadon Sancho. Having Champions League football is definitely going to help Manchester United out on that front. We've reported for a long time now that Jadon Sancho wanted to join a club that was playing Champions League football. Who wouldn't, I guess, in his position? It feels like it's going to come to a positive conclusion for Manchester United at some point, but Borussia Dortmund will not want to give ground. I'm sure they're digging their heels in to try and hold out for that 120 million euros that they've been asking for throughout. So the question is whether uh, Manchester United can get there in instalments, whether they'll budge a little bit at Dortmund and something can get structured this summer. It doesn't feel to me from my conversations like it's sort of close or imminent, but I do sort of have optimism that it will get there. What about you? What are you thinking at the moment? And and you've written about this on The Athletic. From United's uh, perspective, definitely he's the the number one priority, Solskjaer. That's who he is identified as, as filling that sort of um, it's not really a gap, I suppose, because Mason Greenwood's playing there, but he, he wants quality strength in depth. He wants to be able to rotate. And we saw from the season running that he didn't really change his 11 all that much because he felt that they were the guys that were the best players. So even though they were fatigued, keep them out there. I'm similar to you. I mean, the piece that I've written for The Athletic is about the fact that I think now is the time for Woodward and Judge to, to go and do their job to the fullest and you know make this signing with speed really the kind of alacrity that you've seen with Marina Grelevskaya um, as shown with with Timo Werner and and Hakim Ziyech and and potentially also Kai Havertz I just think as the same as you though that I can see this going the same way as Harry Maguire and Bruno Fernandes you know those deals took quite a long time to complete even though Maguire you know was a a target from the get-go last summer it wasn't until five days before the start of the the season that that was completed uh, Bruno Fernandes, Solskjaer obviously flew out to see him personally January the 5th and that deal was done January the 30th and, and by that point United lost to Liverpool and Burnley so whilst I accept that United will want to use time you know so I think that's a, a mode that Woodward has gone down before where he's wanted to um, sort of see how the land lays you know use the fact that the, the window is, is coming to a close to perhaps get the better deal for United but I think that also has a detrimental effect to the fact that you don't have the player in the building so if you could get Sancho in next week you know I'm sure Solskjaer will be thrilled and and there he's got he's got him to work uh, with him at Carrington you know throughout United's Europa League campaign and also um, then in pre-season so that, that would be what I think, you know, from the football perspective, they want, you know, perhaps the club have a slightly different interpretation. And as you say, if it's 120 million euros um, that Dortmund are after, somebody said to me not long ago, if, if United spend 100 million pounds um, on, a, on a single player, that they'd take me for a, a meal, um, a very expensive meal out. So, um, you know, I, I'm kind of hoping that does happen. But equally, I, I take their point that that is looking unlikely. That being said, I just think, you know, that there are ways obviously now of doing add-ons and, and, and sort of constructing deals 
feel so that both parties can feel satisfied. I think Dortmund probably have to accept that the market has changed um, with with coronavirus crisis. But then again, uh, as somebody else said to me, you know, a property is a property, and, and Jaden Sancho is a hot property, and he's worth a certain amount of money. Yeah, if this is going to get done, I sense it will get done there or thereabouts, the fee that Dortmund won. However, for this summer, you imagine it being a £50, £60 million instalment. If Manchester United are to get their way, of course, Dortmund would like more up front. But sometimes there has to be some compromise on these sort of things. Um, A lot has been said about the deadline that Dortmund have uh, reportedly imposed around the 10th of August for this to be sorted or he won't be sold. I'm not sure that is as prescribed and rigid as has been made out. I do think Sancho will go back to training at Dortmund um, and... The boat has not been rocked, so to speak. So relations are still respectful and strong. Um, And like you say, it may be something that plays out over time, even if Dortmund don't want that to happen. Um, Let's move it away from Sancho slightly. There's not going to be a James Madison for Manchester United. Uh, We've already talked on the pod about how he has signed a new contract at Leicester City. He was on Manchester United's list of options for this summer. Um... They've also been linked with Jack Grealish. You and I have talked about that before. How are things looking in other positions with respect to Man United? Yeah, well, the the other two positions that I was told about, striker and, and left-sided centre-half, um, that, that one was sort of more if, if Marcus Rojo goes, um, which I guess you know United would be looking to see if they can get a buyer for him. Um, he's on a good wage, so that might be difficult. It might be another loan, but um, clearly I think that's a position that the props like to strengthen. Obviously, we saw Solskjaer go on the pitch and, and talk to Nathan Ake after the Bournemouth game, um, letting the rabbit out of the, of the hat a little bit there. Um, and, and the striker... I mean, they were, you know, they had talks with Timo Werner, as, as you've reported on, um, when he signed for Chelsea. Um, and and, and, that, and they've shown an interest in Kai Havertz, but that one is, is not going to yeah. happen. Well, that's it. So that one was, I mean, they, they talked with, um, I think, his representatives or certainly Bayer Leverkusen in in, um, in January and, and the sort of 100 million euro price tag was mentioned and they just felt that was too much for a player that they thought would come down in value over the summer. And I suppose they've been proven correct in that if, if reports are to be believed, we're sort of looking at the 80 million pound mark. So it is, it is less than what they were quoted. And it, and United's sort of, sort of approach to that position on the pitch has um, sort of softened a little bit with Bruno Fernandes' impact and Paul Pogba's sort of revival at the club. And that sort of does feed into the Jack Grealish situation whereas previously I was feeling that he was sort of the number one target at one point it's it's kind of gone a little bit quieter more recently although having said that I mean I I watched um, against Southampton uh, you know the 2-2 draw and, and sort of felt that United were giving the ball away a bit too frequently so Fernandes is brilliant for those passes through the lines and creating something but that does come with the risks that you know United concede possession whereas Grealish is more of a carrier of the ball obviously he's you know the most foul player in the Premier League and he can dribble with it so I sort of thought those kind of situations is where he would be potentially really useful for Manchester United and I'm saying I'm not saying that he would only be uh, you know in, in those positions I think he could start you know numerous games for United but I suppose they weigh up the cost of whatever transfer that might be compared to the needs and uh, the moment it feels like the needs are perhaps a little bit elsewhere I've lost count of the number of times you and I have spoken about Manchester United and directors of football (laughs) you know I feel that it's a no-brainer but the latest information we have and, and reports have surfaced again recently that it's sort of back on the agenda is that 
Man United are in the process of deciding whether they want a sort of administrative figure or a more footballing figure. If it's the more footballing figure who would work more closely with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, you could be looking at names like Darren Fletcher, for example, that kind of figure. And a lot of those mm. kind of Man United alumni have been linked with that role. But if they go more down an administrative route, perhaps some of the bigger names who have experience that kind of role around the world previously will come into the mix and that decision making process needs to be concluded before they can even then start identifying and interviewing candidates Mm. and I think the scope of the role might take shape over the summer but it does feel to me like we're still quite a long way from um, seeing an outcome to that particular conversation. That would be my reading of it. I mean, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like we've been here before. You know, it's been sort of two two summers um, of this kind of stuff, and now a third one, I suppose. If if um, you know, if he's going to go that down that route, um, I do think that United needs someone in that position. I've spoken before about um, Matt Judge is a you know negotiator. That's what he's he's done uh, in his career. Does he have the authority to then actually say, yeah, we'll we'll do that deal? I'm not sure. I think he has to go to Edward Wood and then also Joel Glazer. I think it's is a is a, is a process there that can be um, very slow um, because they want to check things um, so would anybody actually come into that and, and have that kind of aut- autonomy I, I don't know I, I suspect not um, if it's a, a football person that could offer insight and, and, and be a face for the club in those initial interactions with potential signings I think that could be beneficial um, but obviously it would, it would need the right kind of person I think Fletcher would be a really interesting um, choice if, if that were to be the case he has been around the club um, quite a lot sort of in, in recent times and I know sort of talks have been held previously so you know it's, it, that's not one to, to, to discount at all but I just I, I think that United I, I just can't see United really moving away from what they've got at the moment they feel it's working I think some people would suggest it's, t- it's too slow a process but then when you've got you know Joel Glazer the Glazer family in charge they want to know where the money's being spent so you know I don't know if we're ever going to get away from from that sort of um, time scale for, for, for big transfers um, yeah so I suppose watch this space but perhaps don't hold your breath yeah I think that sounds about right and one thing that's continually made clear to us is this will not be some kind of transfer supremo whether it is that mm. footballing or administrative role the transfer decisions will continue to be that collective whether somebody else um, has a say in that or not. For all of your Manchester United needs, head over to The Athletic and check out Laurie's work. You can also hear more from him on our Man United podcast, Talk of the Devils. Laurie, thank you. Have a good week. Thanks very much, David. Harry's sponsors the Ornstein and Chapman podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five blade brands. I can vouch for that. And with football coming back, if you're anything like me and could do with sharpening up your appearance, give them a go. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close and comfortable shave. As a listener of the Ornstein and Chapman podcast, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash Ornstein right now 
That's harrys.com forward slash Ornstein. Also from my column this week, it's revealed that hundreds of players in the Premier League, EFL, National League and Scottish Premiership are taking legal action over the use of their performance and tracking data. If successful, the claim is expected to be worth hundreds of millions of pounds. I understand no fewer than 400 current and ex-players and coaches, and that's a number that's actually climbing rapidly, have signed letters of intent over this legal action. They want to explore whether they have a case, and they're pretty optimistic they do. They're pursuing gaming, betting, and data processing companies who use their data to profit, to benefit. The players are not necessarily saying they're unhappy with that, just that the data is being used without any permission being granted or any compensation coming as a result of its use, despite the fact that these companies in many cases are profiting to the tune of millions and millions of pounds. And this all, I guess, comes back to the modern age of privacy laws and GDPR, and that's essentially what this is going to come down to, who owns the data. And the players believe it's them. This has sort of parallels to the rise of image rights in the 1990s where nobody thought much of it. Then people started to realise that the use of a player's image and name and face etc has a price and now most contracts towards the top level of football and many down below uh, and in other sports too there are image rights contracts where players are um, compensated for use of their image by clubs and organisations. Now a surprise to some uh, the, the person kind of Behind this is the experienced manager Russell Slade, formerly of Leighton Orient and Cardiff, among many other clubs. Uh, he cottoned on to this um, and has some pretty robust support from data experts and a legal team led by the UK firm Freeths. It has the potential for sort of huge ramifications on sport, not only football, but other sports too. And I'm delighted to be joined by the Athletics' very own stats guru, Tom Warville. Tom, how many data points are gathered on Premier League players? I think that's a good point to start with. On your kind of average game, and it, it depends a bit across different data providers, but it's usually somewhere between two and 3,000 events. Uh, and those are, you know, every single pass, the tackles, the shots. Uh, and this is kind of what we call event data. So it's every every ball touch is registered and under the context of what sort of ball touch it is. And then in some of the, the more major leagues, like the Premier League the Championship, there are league-wide tracking deals so they will have cameras uh, in the grounds that I think it's usually six six to eight cameras uh, stationed around the grounds and they collect the player uh, positions the position of the referee the linesman and the ball um, every 25th of a second so all in you kind of have you know two three thousand events and then around one and a half million data points of, of this tracking data for every single game so over the course of a season that is it's a lot of data um, that is collected on, you know, these players in different leagues. This data is is being passed on en masse to these various companies, the data processing companies, betting companies uh, and gaming companies to formulate their, I don't know, their odds, their games, their statistics. In the case of, say, data processing companies, that's being used to help formulate values on players, to help with recruitment and scouting. It's an enormous world. It seems to be exploding, proliferating. What my piece is saying is that this isn't really factored into the contracts. No no players or very few players have been asked for their permission over this and certainly not compensated as a result. So it's, a, it's maybe a world that people outside of your sort of sphere don't know so much about. There's an important 
difference we made here of, of just like the impact of the event data, which is obviously measuring things that are, are easy to track, like passes and, you know, yellows and cards and things like this, and the tracking data. And, and I think the tracking data is definitely the piece of interest where I'm pretty sure the Premier League have got kind of, you know, stringent governance in place such that the players data is protected because it is so private. Um, so, I mean, teams in the league don't, uh, you know, they don't have access to each other's vest data. So, they, you know, I can't, if I'm at, say, Arsenal, I won't be able to go to Brighton and say, can I get your, you know, the heart rates of all your players? So there's there's a level there which, um, you know, there is a level of security and privacy of that data. I think it's more with the event data. It's like, do you need to get agreements or permission to be able to go and track and, and gather your own data? I think that's the, the more interesting thing because it scales across so many more leagues than this, uh, the kind of tracking data does at this time. Do you sense that, especially with the value, existing and potential value that this has, a shift and that clubs, agents, players, you know, associated companies will start to take this more more seriously in a way that we did see with image rights in the 90s. We definitely do see, you know, more and more facets of the game are touched by um, data and are using data. And, you know, you have agents now who are going to clubs and saying, you should resign my player because of a report from Consultancy X, which says that, you know, my player is worth, you know, X, Y and Z. Um, so I think, you know, that is a big market. And um, when I used to work at at Opta, um, there was kind of always this policy that you, you know, they kind of wouldn't work with agents because agents using data maybe are, you know, they have different interests to the clubs themselves. The clubs want to be as objective as possible. And Opta kind of want, you know, they they see agents as potentially wanting to work in different ways to those clubs. And now agents have access to this data. And again, it, it does bring into question, you know, should they have this data? Um, are they allowed to use that data? There's a lot of questions around um, permission here. One of the things I understand the players were keen on was this not to have repercussions on the clubs, especially uh, even though this has been talked about privately over the last year or so, maybe even longer, uh, especially during this crisis that they've been going through, they're representing these clubs. A lot of this might have happened um, sort of I don't know, subconsciously, but without any sort of negative intent. And it is important to reiterate that the players are not complaining with their data being used um, lawfully. They, in many cases, are really happy to see it used and their stats to be represented in all sorts of different ways. As you say, it's more a case of um, permission and whether there's a value on it. And I want to address a lot of responses to the column saying this shows that football's greedy and it's another example of players only thinking about money. But to my knowledge, while there are Premier League players involved, the majority, I think it's fair to say, are in the EFL and towards the bottom of it, even into the National League um, and up in Scotland as well. Um, they're seeing their data used. They get very low income as it is and they've been made aware of something that they could... Um, have the right to gain income from while at the same time the companies that are taking it are in many cases making massive profits as a result um let's sort of throw it forward tom how do you see player data being used in the coming years to aid performance and even aid the viewing experience of armchair fans with performance we obviously we maybe don't see um as much as we do obviously on the media side but you know a lot of clubs now have, have sports science departments for player health and well-being and then there's a lot more on the the kind of more analytic side for recruitment i do really think over the course of the next years teams will start to 
use data more when it comes to strategizing about who they're playing next. Um, there are tons of quick wins when it comes to opposition analysis to to use data to kind of speed things up. There was the excellent, you know, Spygate webinar by uh, Marcelo Bielsa. And in it, he was kind of talking around going through video and spending hours and hours on even like the third choice goalkeeper. And there's a lot of instances where I was watching that and just thinking you could do this quicker with data, you could do this quicker with data. So I think a lot of quick wins now are just speeding up and, and freeing up time. And then, yeah, when it comes to the viewing experience, I mean, of course, there's, there's going to be appetite to talk about the, the game in different ways. And I know that the Premier League and their kind of tracking and analytics providers are working together on, on new measures such as, you know, looking at off the ball runs or expected pass completion and try and bring to the fore players like Bruno Fernandes and, and the things that they do which don't show up in the, the goals and assist columns. And there are also some some great new sites. So Smarter Scout is a, is a, a tool we use a fair amount on the site. Um, it covers a bunch of leagues. It shows you kind of the data for players from, I think, yeah, 48 leagues in a really, you know, simple to understand and concise manner. And I think that is a really nice kind of low-hanging fruit. To, if you're a, a fan in your club signs a player this summer, um, how can I quickly get a view on the sort of player they are and what they excel at? So there's a lot more kind of you know products like that that are coming out that are, are making analytics um, easy to understand and use of fans and also uh, helping us learn more about the game on the club side as well. It's a fascinating industry. And perhaps this story just shows a different angle that many people haven't considered um, amid this eruption of information, data and statistics. Uh, it's certainly one to keep an eye on on The Athletic and I'm sure elsewhere. Tom, thanks very much for your time. We'll let you get back to your spreadsheets and number crunching uh, as we speak. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks, David. Right, that's it. Thanks for listening as always. Do let us know what you think by leaving a comment and a rating wherever you're listening to us. We'll be back next week. <laughs>